Hey, it's Jordan Chariton with Beat the Press podcast. Thanks for joining and thanks for being a patron. Uh, this will be free for everybody. And I'm really, really happy to uh, invite Matt Taibbi, Rolling Stone correspondent, uh, general badass in the media, uh, joining me. How you been, Matt? Good. How are you doing, Jordan? Good, good. Busy uh, getting back into the game here. So yeah. uh, there's a lot to talk about. The news is kind of... Uh, <laughs> never stops, uh, particularly the Trump media industrial complex. But uh, a lot of other stuff going on, too, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I want to I start, you know, in the middle of just the constant, uh, you know, Trump and tweets and Russia. You wrote a really interesting book, uh, full disclosure, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read <laughs> some of it, uh, called I Can't Breathe. Right. And obviously, uh, after the murder of Eric Garner in Staten Island, and you took a really d- deep dive into police brutality, the corruption in the police departments, a lot of the financial component. Um, I wanted to ask you, starting out, uh, obviously, <laughs> it's not getting better under Trump, but sure. you know, my recent experience in St. Louis last year, I was arrested with my cameraman while at the Young Turks. I learned just sitting with like 36 uh, mostly black black St. Louis citizens that it's, they describe it as like modern day Jim Crow in, in St. Louis, not just police brutality, but, uh, hiring and just the racism hurled at them. Uh, can you kind of give a 360 view of, of what you learned in your reporting in the book? Well, I think that was one of the surprising things that, uh, I was embarrassed. I didn't know more about was the similarity between, um, kind of modern policing tactics and a lot of the the legal uh, infrastructure that was built around Jim Crow. The, you know, the police were given a lot of tools to kind of enforce uh, separatism uh, and segregation uh, after, actually even in before uh, the Civil War. And a lot of that included giving police authority to essentially stop and arrest black people for any reason at all at any time, giving them tools like vagrancy laws that allowed them to, to arrest people basically on any pretext. Now, we have basically an identical system now uh, in most cities in America where people can be arrested for things like refusal to obey a lawful police order or obstructing pedestrian traffic, uh, or loitering, uh, which is essentially identical to what went on all those years. And I think that's what, what you're going to be hearing about when you talk to people in, in those neighborhoods is, I can't go from one place to another without being stopped by a cop. And that's why I'm upset at the police. I mean, I, it, it, and, and it's also the basis for a lot of these these, these abuse incidents that go wrong. It's just the, the heightened number of incidents that uh, that that occur between police and population when they have the, these bogus pretexts for stopping people. Yeah, and one thing you know I find interesting is we we know you know all over the country that, that there's this notion in the corporate media that America was just dandy on January nineteenth, and it's become so much worse uh, since Trump became uh, president. It has in, in several ways, particularly the environment, but. You know, I look around, I've covered a lot of things in minority communities. You see Flint, 
uh, East Chicago with the lead problem there, St. Louis. And the common denominator is the economic oppression. Um, some uh, activists in Black Lives Matter have called it economic terrorism. And that seems to, I'd love your thoughts, but it seems to be perpetuated through the same politicians saying they're for, uh, you know, the, the working class and minorities. I mean, we just literally now they're deregulating the big banks again. And we know in the 2008 crash, uh, African-Americans were disproportionately affected. So uh, what are your thoughts on just this perpetual uh, economic uh, part of this? Yeah, it's funny. Just to talk about 2008, I, that's a source of actual serious shame on my part. I, I covered the um, the financial crisis for almost eight years consecutively and did uh, countless features on the causes and the roots of the financial crisis. And it really wasn't until uh, sort of the end of my experience on that beat that I started to be clued into the racial um angle on that story and there really was one um it was uh what happened with subprime mortgages was was just a a kind of a modern take on what we used to call the contract mortgage um which is was a situation where uh white bankers would go into black neighborhoods and they would offer mortgages on extremely onerous and punitive uh lending terms often with no money down uh, that's essentially what happened with the subprime crisis. We went into a lot of middle and low income neighborhoods, particularly um, uh, minority neighborhoods, and knocked on doors and offered people refi deals and mortgages, um, either with no money down or with money that they actually got up front um, in return for these very, very complicated uh, derivative based mortgages that turned out to have floating interest rates and, and ended up causing people to foreclose in their homes almost immediately. So all of that was was a, a, a massive component of the financial crisis, the, the, the racial aspect of it. And even people who were looking hard at it, like me for years, missed it. And I think, um, and I think that was a, an area where, um, where both candidates, frankly, on the Democratic side uh, in the last election missed an opportunity to talk about some of the systemic uh, problems with racism. I mean, that was one of one of Hillary Clinton's tropes was if we break up, break up the banks tomorrow, it's not going to end racism. And Bernie Sanders could have, if he had wanted to, answered with, with some of this stuff. And I don't think he, he didn't do it, uh, probably because he didn't know about it. Um, but but uh, in, in fact, the banks are, are involved in a lot of extremely racist policies. Right. And you look at, I mean, the, re the reforms, I put that in air quotes, uh, the police body cams, these kinds of things. I mean, it, it, it seems in many cases kind of like smoke and mirrors. I mean, you're seeing even departments that have police body cams, them either not on, <laughs> not working. Uh, we just have another uh, situation. Stephen Clark, a 22 year old, uh, they say he was carrying a weapon when he was shot at um, 20 times on Sunday in California. Um, since you're, since the book published, are you, are you seeing improvements in terms of body cameras, this kind of thing? Because it seems to me um, the police are kind of bandying together more than ever to, you know, hold court, so to speak. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that those, 
that those uh, reforms are really going to accomplish a whole lot. Uh, the, the, the problem with all of these things is it's ultimately political. And, and, and one of the things I really dislike about this, this um, narrative is that it, it focuses most of the attention on individual police officers who are often like these, these working class uh, men and women who come from the suburbs, they, they, don't, they don't come from the areas where, where, where they're policing, but you know, they're making forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year with, with a few benefits. Uh, but they're not the ones who are, who are ordering, um, you know, who, who are coming up with the plan to stop people uh, 500,000 times a year uh, or to, you know, to, to come up with a broken windows theory. They're just, do, they're, for the most part, they're, they're, they're fulfilling strategies that have been dictated to them from above. And those strategies are coming from, uh, in the, in the, in large part, upscale white urban voters who, whether they want to admit it or not, really just don't want black people in their neighborhoods. And that's why, you know, you, you'll see, no matter what reforms you come up with, until you can get uh, rich white urban uh, uh, residents and voters comfortable with the idea of letting uh, people of color into their neighborhoods, you're going to see this kind of aggressive policing, particularly on the borders uh, of rich and poor neighborhoods. And uh, moving on from aggressive policing to no policing at all, uh, <laughs> you infamously, uh, I don't know if all the listeners uh, have read this, but uh, one of my favorite pieces from you was The Great American Bubble Machine. Uh, it was published 2010. I'll read just a short part. The world's most powerful investment banks is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Call me dramatic, but it seems like that blood funnel since 2008 has not exactly been severed. And now you have uh, 16 Democrats basically helping Republicans push, I I guess it's not a complete repeal of Dodd-Frank, but really peeling back Dodd-Frank, which I don't know what you think, was a band-aid. I think it's more of a band-aid for a gunshot wound. Uh, what are your thoughts now? I, I guess it's not shocking. It's you know Trump's president, but uh, it seems that in under the guise of helping small community banks, they are also repealing uh, legislation that would uh, govern the big banks. It's not surprising. The 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 defections on the Democratic side occurred in about the same ratios that that. They occurred during the original negotiations of, of Dodd-Frank, which I covered from beginning to end. Um, the, you know, when we, when we first sat down to come up with solutions to stop what happened uh, in, in 2008 from ever happening again, there were just a few simple concepts that people focused on. And had we done that, we, we would be in much better shape today, the same way that we, we were after the, the great crash in the late 20s. The, the solutions were really obvious and simple. You had to put stocks on open exchanges that everybody, where everybody could see all the activity. You had to make publicly traded companies uh, adhere to a few basic rules so that people could know what they were investing in. Um, and we had to create some uh, a few regulators for a few of the markets, like commodities. Um, and what we have now is we have a situation where we have new financial instruments that have been invented since those laws, like derivatives, like credit default swaps or interest rate swaps that are not traded on open exchanges. They're traded in the dark. And 
because of that, the, the original concepts were really simple. Let's put all this stuff that's now currently in the dark on open regulated exchanges and we'll just have the market sort itself out. But what, what the, the lobbyists uh, on both side of the aisle, sides of the aisle did is they continually larded this bill up with one exception after another until it was this gigantic, unwieldy thing that nobody understood uh, and that barely accomplished anything. And the, and the few things that it did accomplish, like sort of kind of separating depository banks from investment banks, um, you know, the, the rules for that were cloaked in, in pages and pages of verbiage, and now they've just made it even more, uh, you know, difficult. They've raised the threshold for what the oversight is going to be from 50 billion to 250 billion in assets. So this this was a law that didn't do a whole lot to begin with, and is going to do even less now. Yeah, and what's what's kind of troubling to me is I get criticized a lot uh, for covering Democrats critically. You know, if you're not leading the resistance, you're, you know, a Kremlin agent, apparently. Right, yeah. But obviously, <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. Obviously, um, you know, Trump is worse than Obama. That's that's clear. Um, but it seems that the Democrats, uh, under the 24-7 focus on Trump, um, you know, Stormy Daniels, his tweets, uh, you know, drip, 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 the Cold War reenactment on TV, it seems to me like they're kind of trying to push either a Joe Biden or a Kamala Harris or a Cory Booker, and we might have, uh, you know, either Democrats retake the House or retake the White House in 2020, but these practices that really devastated the economy, they, the Democrats sound better and, and more professional and less crazy, but these practices aren't going to change, whether it's the Democrats or Trump. Would you suggest that's true? Yeah, I, I, I hate the line of thinking that you're talking about, the, this, the whole, they're worse, so why are you focusing on this? Uh, well, it, it, that, that's the same argument that we heard um, after the Iraq war when, you know, a lot of us who are sort of progressive said, well, wait a minute, we can't start torturing people. That's not who we are, right? And the argument from the conservative side was, well, uh, in Iraq, they're chopping off our heads, they're setting bodies on fire, they're hanging people in public, and you're worried about a little bit of you know, dunking people in water. What's wrong with you? Those people are so much worse than us. But, the, but uh, you know, my point, and I think our point back then, was you have to worry about your own, your own community first and what, what the attitudes are there, and that's the most important thing. The, the, the people that you, have, that you personally have influence over um, or, or with, uh, and you know, that's where it's important to have the argument. If, you, if you're always constantly pointing the finger at some, at some group that isn't gonna listen to you anyway, um, then, then nobody is really examining uh, you know, their, their own belief systems. And as you say, you know, what, what's gonna happen if we don't you know, t start talking now about um, issues other than, you know, Trump is bad, Trump has affairs with, with Playboy models. Um, A, we're going to have the same problems at the polls that we, you know, that, that people had uh, the last election or uh, go around. Uh, but B, uh, you know, also we haven't discussed amongst ourselves what, what do we really stand for apart from, 
from being against Trump. I mean, what could be more obvious than <laughs> than not approving of Donald Trump as president? I mean, that doesn't take a great intellectual leap, you know. <laughs> I think, but I think I think it does take a leap to say how do how what policies are going to make you know the world better? Uh, this this complicated, screwed up world that we have right now. How do we get out of here, out of this mess? And that's not something that you can fix just by pointing a finger at Donald Trump, I don't think. Well, and also, I mean, forget progressive, neoliberal, what's right morally and ethically, like as a political strategy, okay, you ran in 2016 on the focus 24-7 on Trump, you know, the, the banner of stronger together, which really means nothing. And they're kind of doing it, doing it again. I mean, months ago, Chuck Schumer came out with like a better deal, and that was what they're for, which was kind of a poll-tested, you know, consultant written document. Right. But it seems like the same strategy of it lost is being reincarnated for the congressional races, and you know, presumably twenty twenty. Right, right. And look, the, yeah, I, I said this after after Trump won. Um, I, I expected that there would be an, sort of immediate, an immediate reckoning within the Democratic Party about, you know, what, what do we stand for? How do we go forward? Because if you were covering the campaign, you know, as I did, uh, traveling the country, listening to, to voters constantly, what you heard all, over and over again was, I don't trust anybody who's a politician because um, they're paid for by special interests. And Trump took huge advantage of this by constantly talking about it. You know, he, he incinerated Jeb Bush by saying, you think Jeb Bush is going to get you cheaper uh, pharmaceutical prices? His campaign chairman is, is uh, Woody Johnson, who's the head of Johnson Johnson Corporation. Um, and he was absolutely right about that. It, it, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, illicit relationship between big money, big corporate money, and politics is what turns off uh, voters on both sides of the aisle. And, and the, the basic critique of, of the Sanders campaign was, we can't serve two masters at once. We either have to stop taking the money, um, or we have to admit that we don't really work for ordinary people, right? And, and they haven't they haven't addressed that question yet because I, 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 the Democrats, they, they still want to have it both ways. They want to take all the money from the pharma companies, from Wall Street, um, you know, from the weapons manufacturers, and they want to call themselves progressives. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, so I, I, they, I think they just want to put it off for another couple of election cycles, run against Trump and, and hope for the best. Yeah, I mean, I just did a report. Uh, yesterday. I mean, this stuff happens out in the daylight, just nobody reports on it. But Joe Biden, uh, they had a fundraiser with Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. This was a discounted one, you know, 17,500 to walk in the door to have, you know, stale prime rib. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that's, I mean, during the during the election, it was more like, you know, 50 to 100,000 to, you know, say hello to Hillary Clinton. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's it's frustrating because I think I don't want to speak for you, but for me, the reason I'm so dif uh, tough on the Democratic Party is, well, this is at the moment our main electoral hope to defeating extreme right wing right wingism, uh, so, and you can't defeat extreme right wingism with you know, all right, they're better for women's rights and they won't ban religions, but they work for the banks. Uh, so uh, I wanted I wanted to move on. Uh, hey, you can, brought can, up. A can I just interrupt with? One more quick thing about that. Sure, sure. There, there's, there's one other thing about 
because they, they based so much of their campaign strategy in 2016 on raising money because historically it's it's smart that you know 96 or 97 percent of the time the the, the the national candidate that, that raises more money wins so they focused on that they were constantly doing fundraisers the candidate was very often not speaking but but at fundraisers um, but the problem with that is that when you're when you're at fundraisers, when you're talking to, to those people, um, you're not talking to the other people. You're not getting intelligence about what the vast bulk of voters are thinking and feeling. And that's one of the reasons why the results took them by surprise constantly. I mean, I'm talking about from the beginning of the process to the end. They were surprised first by the, by the Sanders phenomenon. They were surprised by the results in the Republican primaries. Then they were surprised by the final electoral results. And they sh they wouldn't have been had they been out there talking to ordinary people because it was abundantly clear to anybody who talked to voters on both sides of the aisle that there was unprecedented levels of rage out there. But you're not going to get that if you're talking to people for seventeen thousand dollars a meal. So I'm sorry, but I think that's a key point. Perfect, perfect segue. Uh, before I get into the Russia stuff, I wanted to ask you because I often felt felt kind of like an alien uh, as a reporter on the campaign trail. Uh, I'd be at these rallies. I was at many Bernie rallies, Trump rallies, Clinton rallies, and I'd be like one of the few, uh, I guess, national media actually that left the press section, right. like in the back. They have their stage and their the journalists are tweeting and doing their standups, but like. I would actually be in the crowd uh, before, after rallies, interviewing voters, and they'd be, you know, some of them would look at me like, "Oh, what's what's this young Turk doing?" When I when I was at the Young Turk, and it was always kind of this alternate reality, like what I was actually uh, hearing from voters, especially in the Midwest and the Rust Belt. I would like turn on, you know, TV at my hotel, and it's an alternate reality on on CNN and MSNBC, and and it seems to have dwarfed now to. I mean, you want to talk about why people were surprised on November 16th, excuse me, on November 8th, the corporate media was stunned because they never actually spoke with anyone. They were just relying on the pollsters and themselves. What are your thoughts on, you know, the corporate media has also, it seems, not changed one bit? Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've written about this a lot. I've, cover, I've covered, you know, now five presidential elections and, and for, for several of them, I did them. Uh, you know, at first I tried to do it in the way that, that it's traditionally done, where you, where you fly around with the press corps and you're you're literally in a like a flying prison, um, because once the Secret Service gets involved, uh, you know you have to get somebody to smuggle you in cigarettes, or you know, <laughs> I mean you can't leave the bubble of the plane easily, uh, and you're and you're trapped in the same atmosphere. With the, the the aides, the the candidate, uh, and and other journalists, which is not a good way of you know you can crisscross thousands and thousands of miles of territory per day and not see or hear a new thought ever uh, because you're you're in the same bubble over and over again. So I when I immediately saw that this was a problem when I first started doing this, and I would do things like I would get to a city and run a mile in any direction away from the um, away from the, the event and knock on a door and just sit down and talk to people about anything that didn't have to do with politics. Uh, and it could be because I realized that the, the, the format of campaigning um, is designed to prevent reporters really from, uh, from seeing anything that the campaign doesn't want them to see. And, and increasingly what we do over the years is 
we rely on the people who are brought into the to the events, who are often sort of ushered in there uh, by uh, the campaign itself, um, and we rely on polls for getting our information. And these are two highly unreliable indicators of what people out there think. Because if you actually go away from the events, what you find is most people actually hate both parties and aren't planning on voting. Um, uh, then there's another group that's just uh, furious uh, and has all these things to say. And then there's a, there's this relatively small group of people who has a positive um, uh, feeling about the two political parties and goes to these events. And that's what that's what the reporters see most of the time. And that's why they have a skewed a skewed vision of what's going on. Yeah, and to button that up, I think uh, really let's call it what it is. I mean, these are not news outlets. <laughs> the majority of them are riding this sugar high uh, of Trump. I mean, I think CNN and MSNBC's rating uh, profits doubled uh, between 20 in 2016. And they usually after an election year, there's a drop off in ratings and clicks and it's only gone up. Right. So, uh, you know, obviously, Going into, you know, the history and the deregulation of telecom would be a whole nother two hours. But uh, obviously, like especially CNN, I mean, it's kind of egregious on CNN. I don't think if I've turned on CNN over the last year or two, I, I other than gun, um, you know, mass shootings, which happen every week now, I've seen very little other than Trump. Right. Right. Well, Trump makes everybody money. I mean, this is no secret. Les Moonves from CBS with that famous quote, you know, he's not good for America, but he's sure he's good for business. Um, everybody knows that Trump gets ratings. We have an industry that has been in continual decline for decades now, but is suddenly, you know, making booming profit, profits for the first time in a long time. Um, and that, a lot of that has to do with Trump. I, I, I look a lot and, and those statistics you cited about, about the, the ratings, especially after the election, they're so significant. But the, there's a couple of data points that I find really fascinating. One is that um, if you ask, if you look at uh, surveys recently, you'll, you'll see that people trust the press less than ever now, but they watch it more than ever. They watch the news more than ever before. So what do those two data points mean? That They mean that people are consuming the news as something other than um, information. They're, they're consuming it as, as entertainment. So we've, we're making the profits, but where are those profits coming from? We're eating into the, the uh, entertainment business, which is extremely disturbing. And, and it should be a source of huge concern within the business, but it's not because you know, we have this unconscious motivation to make money that you know is built into the way we look at whether a story is good or not um and that and that's why we we're constantly covering the stupid the very stupidest stuff there is to cover which brings us to a story that you know i personally think is also part of the ratings uh motivation you uh worked in russia 20 years ago uh for a newspaper the exile i believe um I was born like during the Cold War in the mid '80s, so I don't I don't remember anything. But um, in people I've spoken to, it, it seems that there it, it seems very similar to the lead up to Iraq to me, because that I do remember how things are just so uh, breathlessly being passed off. You know, uh, anchors kind of regurgitating whatever the unnamed CIA officials tell them, particularly if you're David Ignatius and folks like that. Uh, I do think that 
there's clear evidence that you know Russia interfered as far as these these troll farms and so uh, you know propaganda. I also happen to know that's not a new thing. It's just accelerated. Uh, I I haven't seen any forensic evidence provided by the, by the government as far as hacking and and all that. You know the declassified uh, presentation they gave last year. I mean even corporate journalists were saying this is there's nothing. He, nothing new here, but what are your thoughts just on where we're at uh, in terms of Russia Gate, and particularly, um, what is the end game? It just seems like uh, the corporate media is just kind of like pounding their chests until everyone basically wants to go towards the brink of war uh, with Russia. Yeah, I mean, look, this this story has been uh, a serious problem in my my life, my career. Uh, I've lost a lot of friends over it. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly no friend of Donald Trump. I don't like the guy. I, I badly wish he wasn't president. Uh, but from, from the very first moment they started pushing this collusion narrative in the news, it just, you know, my spider sense as a reporter just went off and, and said, just there's something about this that doesn't quite feel right. Um, you know, I, I felt like it was being oversold uh, by by a lot of people who were appearing on the news. You know, the, 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 the parade of uh, should have been disgraced uh, ex-intelligence and military officials who sold us the WMD uh, fiasco uh, suddenly reappearing on the news every day, that is, should be a major red flag to reporters. I mean, of Christ, they had Barry McCaffrey on, on MSNBC last night, and this guy was one of the very worst uh, in terms of getting us into the Iraq war. And in fact, you know, MSNBC, he was on MSNBC uh, pushing us, uh, you know, into that conflict 15 years ago, and they bring him back for this. And, and if you look I, at- I mean, Bill Crystal might as well be sleeping in the green room. He's on there so much. I, it's unbelievable. Bill, I mean, Bill Crystal, my, my God, he was like, you know, the, the, the well, I, w- I would say the Prince of Darkness, except that was Richard Pearl. Um, that was his nickname. You know, Bill Crystal was at the head of that WMD nonsense. He was on the Committee to Liberate Iraq. Um, and, you know, all these groups that have formed up around around the Russiagate phenomenon, like uh, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, the German Marshall Fund, uh, you know, they're all part of the Atlantic Council. It's it's a lot of the same people who who got us into the last mess, and that that is highly concerning. The the um, the fact that we're at a an all time high in terms of tension with Russia. We have a military situation. In Syria, that's very delicate. We have exercises on the border with NATO, uh, uh, near the Russian border and in the Baltics, NATO exercises. Um, all this stuff is troubling. But the main thing is uh, that, that I that I worry about with this story is just um, is just the, the, to the, to see so many reporters sort of leaping to conclusions, uh, you know, before. They have a whole lot of solid evidence to work with. This is a recipe for disaster and listening to unnamed sources um, and and assuming that they're not going to hang you out to dry is a mistake that reporters should never make. And we should look back at our history uh, in terms of listening to government sources, particularly unnamed ones. Um, 
they don't care if they burn us. Uh, and that and that's a thing that I think a lot of the reporters who are you know sort of neck deep in this now uh, should be concerned about it because we're way way over the edge with this thing. I mean, you know, if any part of it isn't true, uh, it's another major credibility disaster for us. And I mean, there's many things that concern me about this, but one that I you wrote about recently, you wrote a great piece about this blacklist that's been emerging. So basically, it seems like anything that the you know establishment politicians on either side uh, and and the media don't particularly like, say a Bernie Sanders or Black Lives Matter or what you know. I, I've even heard Russian trolls were responsible for how big the the Standing Rock demonstrations were. It, it seems like just breathlessly based on like what some obscure a new uh, think tank. You know, there's like a think tank between I, I think some of the Democratic stalwarts with, with Clinton's campaign and um, these Bill Crystal types that are now researching, quote, Russian influence. Uh, it seems like they're ascribing, we've heard Russian trolls were responsible for many Black Lives Matter things or Standing Rock or Ber- Bernie's. I, I've even heard from kind of like what I call Hillbots on Twitter that Bernie's campaign was so large because Russian trolls propped it up. I mean, what are your thoughts on kind of, it seems like they're trying to drown out dissent by making it seem that dissent isn't real. Well, I mean, of course. And and I get this every day. I get accused of being a, a, a Russian spy, you know, probably once every few hours. Um, and Look, report, reporters are human beings. They they don't want to be in that that place. They they they, they do not want to be um, accused of being in league with any enemy. And so, there's a smaller number of people who are expressing skepticism than I know there are in real life. Because I know I, I talk to a lot of reporters who have doubts about this, but there's only a few who've done so publicly, um, expressed those doubts publicly. And yes, the things like the Hamilton 68 dash, dashboard, which is that think tank you're talking about. Um, they've they've used this this um, uh, sort of uh, crazy re- reverse logic, which is that if a Russian bot or a site that is determined to be a Russian bot retweets, uh, you know, something involving Black Lives Matter or the Sanders campaign, ipso facto, that means Putin is supporting those movements, and therefore we should reject them. So you know, we had this article in the Washington Post last November. That, that openly says, what will progressives do when, they use this language, when Vladimir Putin interferes on behalf of Democratic nominee Bernie Sanders in 2020? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're already setting up as, you know, all these movements, and the only, it seems like the only um, people who are exempt from this treatment are people who or either, you know, hardcore neocons like David Frum and Bill Kristol, or they're from the sort of corporate wing of the the Democratic Party, Uh, people like Michael Morell, who would have been Hillary Clinton's CIA director. And this is deeply troubling, this idea that they found um, a way to to use the Russia scandal to kind of, to, to, as a hammer against other kinds of dissent. I find that extremely suspicious. And, um, and it's, it's a, a byproduct of a story, again, that has, has yet to really um, have been proven, uh, but borne out in, in the news. So I, I, you know, I worry about a lot of that. And one thing that I find uh, not just troubling, but kind of perplexing, 
I think there's probably just based on common sense, uh, you know, being we both live in the New York area, knowing Donald Trump's history, uh, good investigative reporters could go to town uh, finding information on his businesses, past dealings in Russia, in Saudi Arabia, in other countries. Uh, even without his tax returns, you could probably find some uh, some circumstantial or concrete evidence of money laundering, these kinds of things. Yet, I, I, I feel like you don't see a lot of those kinds of in-depth uh, reporting or even wall-to-wall coverage because it seems like the goal is to really focus more on the collusion, which to me, you're trying to stoke the older cable news audience into those Cold War sentiments. Uh, what are your thoughts? Because it seems that there should be a lot more investigation and wall-to-wall coverage about the president might be making policy based on his deals or past deals with foreign countries beyond Russia, could be other countries too. What's your take on that? Yeah, again, this is a major problem that I have with the story is that is that it's so ambitious in its scope. It's, it's, not, it's not just we suspect that Donald Trump was a money launderer at some point, which, uh, or committed fraud. I mean, if, if you ask me the story that came out uh, last year um, about, uh, about Trump's kids and, the, and the, the Trump Soho project, that story seemed like a, a, a really rich avenue of investigation for investigative uh, reporters, and they probably could have found something extremely damaging um, if they had looked there. I mean, we had evidence that that Trump's lawyers were calling up the, the district attorney there and uh, and trying to perhaps intervene in the investigation to prevent a further inquiry. Well, why aren't we looking at that? But the Russia thing, it, it, it just too suspiciously dovetails with the sort of larger narrative that, you know, people from the Brookings Institute and the Atlantic Council and groups like that have always wanted, which is more an increased level of, of confrontation with Russia. I mean, I, this is going to, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but of all the things that I heard come out of Donald Trump's mouth on the campaign trail, and I sat and listened to that idiot ramble on for, for almost two years, uh, the one thing that he said that actually made a little bit of sense was we should probably try to improve our relations with Russia and tone down the hostilities because, um, we have nothing to gain uh, from getting into, uh, you know, a heated uh, quasi-military um, uh, conflict with Russia, and um, and yet that seems to be an emphasis of the story. It's not. It's not just that we suspect Trump of having committed crimes. It's also we suspect anybody who wants to have better relations with Russia of being somehow suspect. It's an amazing example of this just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, four Democratic senators, Merkley, uh, Sanders, Feinstein, of all people, and Markey, all called for uh, starting uh, negotiations and talks with the Russians. If you look on Google News, you'll find that only one outlet reported on this, The Nation, in, in two weeks. Um, but there's a parade of generals on TV every day who are saying, you know, we're facing a new Pearl Harbor, and we have to we have to do more to confront Russia. So, uh, I, there there is a, an infrastructural imperative towards more conflict that makes me nervous about the whole thing as well. Um, and and especially with Donald Trump, the last thing you want this guy doing 
is behaving in a bellicose manner with nuclear weapons towards Vladimir Putin. It just, it's, it's you know, a, a matter of survival for all of us. And by the way, these same parade of, you know, generals that led us into the Iraq war were on TV two days ago on the 15th anniversary. And there was, I think I heard a mention that it was the 15th year anniversary of the Iraq war. But it seems that, you know, it, the military industrial complex moves on very quickly from, I call it a real war with uh, under fake pretenses. Uh, you heard barely a pin a crickets about that anniversary the other day. No, it was amazing. And, and you know, the, the New York Times had the gall to run an opinion piece in, in, in their paper saying that, you know, the, the people who, who got us into that war have been unpunished. I mean, are you kidding? The New York Times played a central role in getting us into that war. Um, and, and, you know, that, that episode where, where, again, big establishment newspapers and, and TV stations like the Times and the Post um, constantly get hood, hoodwinked by intelligence operatives and by government sources who will tell us stuff all the time. You know, they're, they're always whispering in our ear, oh, we know this, we know that. Um, and then when, you know, reporters have to do the job of asking, where did it come from? What exactly is your information? How, how sure are you? Um, and we don't do that enough. And that's how, that's how Iraq happened, because what we basically had was a completely unreliable guy like Chalabi uh, blabbering whatever he thought we wanted to hear, um, and that that turned out to be the basis for a lot of a lot of our march to war. And it was because reporters didn't do the work of of challenging it. Right. And uh, my last question on Russia is: I mean, you you worked in Russia. You know it way better than I do. I mean, just watching Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States, I was flabbergasted. I mean. Vladimir Putin, not a not a good guy. I'm not defending Putin, but I mean, the, yeah, United States. I mean, we pushed up basically on uh, Russia's border as far as NATO. Uh, we have missiles. You know, we've had missiles uh, aimed their way uh, on their border at, in Turkey. Uh, you know, we through you know our capitalist spread democracy basically helped Yeltsin destroy the economy in Russia. Uh, when it, you know, uh, as it was, uh, you know, the Soviet Union ended uh, and you had, I forget his name, but you had a former CIA official on Fox News, much less <laughs> a few weeks ago, basically like it was asked like, well, don't don't. Yeah. Don't we interfere with other countries? And he kind of was like, well, for good reasons. So it's that seems to be lost in this. The fact that, like, you know, the United States has done some things to antagonize other countries, including Russia. Well, I mean, I, I live there when. When we meddled in, and particularly in the 1996 Russian election, uh, and Americans need to know this backstory because they seem to think that we should be invading Russia on the basis of a few Facebook ads uh, when they don't know what we did. What we did was was far more significant. In 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 late 1995, Boris Yeltsin was running at about seven or eight percent in the polls. He was going to lose to the communist challenger, a guy named Gennady Zaganov, who himself was a complete idiot and would probably have been a terrible president. I don't deny that at all. But um, what happened at that time is that there was a deal brokered uh, between the sort of Harvard-educated, American-backed uh, deputy who served under Yeltsin, this guy Anatoly Chubias. Uh, they went to Davos and met with uh, seven of the richest Rus Russians, uh, and essentially there was a deal cooked up where uh, 
the Yeltsin government privatized the jewels of Soviet uh, industry into the hands of, of a, literally seven people um, in exchange for promises of massive financial support for his re-election campaign. So we single-handedly, A, and those privatizations were, were advised upon by the United States. We helped design them. Um, that, that's part A, that we single-handedly helped create an oligarch class in that country. Part B is that we sent advisors who had offices in the Kremlin uh, and helped Yeltsin uh, design his ads, design his campaign strategy. And we were so proud of it that it was on the cover of uh, Time magazine on July 17th, 1996. If you look, you'll see a headline that says Yanks to the Rescue. We made a movie about it starring Jeff Goldblum called Spinning Boris. Um, so, you know, our interference in that election was overt and not, and it wasn't limited to making a few ads. We fundamentally reordered Russian society, uh, and made it more economically, uh, unequal, um, in order to pursue the aim of keeping our guy in the Kremlin. And look, Russians didn't call for a war against the United States after that, but that certainly helped lead to the nationalist sentiment that helped put Putin in office. And this is this is something that Americans just don't understand is that we're dealing with the Putin problem in large part as a, because he's a reaction to the, how we behaved in the 90s uh, bef uh, before he was in office. So all that stuff is relevant. Right. My last question, nothing to do with Russia or any of that, but, you know, you've been in uh, you've been in mag magazine uh, print. You've obviously digital media as well. Uh, you see the changes in the media, and you see now uh, a lot of these outlets that once relied on heavy Facebook traffic. Well, Facebook's changed its algorithm in addition to some other things they've done. Uh, now a lot of people are going like, you know, paywall. Uh, most of the websites I used to go to, now it's like five articles and you're done. You have to pay. Um, I wanted to ask what you think, because whether it's me, I am actually in the process now of launching... Uh, working to launch a, a media network that's going to rely heavily on in-the-field journalism on a lot of the stories no one else covers, you know, the Flints, the Standing Rocks, the minimum wage uh, battles across the country, kind of the stuff that's not sexy uh, on CNN. Uh, do you, I have pitched that idea to some uh, media elites on the East Coast, and, you know, they kind of pat you on the back, oh, that's so admirable, but, you know, you can't make money that way. Do you actually think... Uh, like a kind of not obviously not a Bernie model, uh, not not specific to Bernie, but a small dollar subscription model for in the field independent journalism could work in this country, or are we are we kind of doomed to to this corporate you need a big fat cat uh, investor kind of thing? Well, you know, I think what we call eat your vegetables media has always relied upon. Um, being subsidized from somewhere, you know, it, it, tr traditionally, you know, the, the trade-off, if you go back to the Communications Act of 27 and then 33, um, we had a public interest standard, which basically said you, you can't have a TV or radio license from the FCC unless you make programming that is at least a little bit in the public interest and represents the views of all major groups. So, as a result of that, for a long time, at least superficially, we had this idea that, um, you know, uh, channels like CBS, NBC, ABC, they made their money on sports and entertainment and sitcoms, and then the news was just something we did as a loss leader, um, and it didn't have to make money. And 
we started to change our minds about that in the 80s and 90s when Fox came along. They started to have a new business model that, that targeted demographics by giving people the news that they, what they wanted to hear. Uh, platforms like Facebook have significantly accelerated that negative tendency in the media by basically only giving people uh, news that they believe is, is uh, engineered ahead of time to be in alignment with a person's point of view. So there are, there are whole generations of people who have grown up without ever seeing a piece of news that disagrees with, with, with their point of view. And that is extremely dangerous and we have to find some way to pay for that other kind of uh, media. But also I think we have to, I think we gotta break up you know, companies like Facebook and Google because they have they have a de facto monopoly, monopoly on media distribution, and um, you know they're 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 the source of about seventy uh, percent of most media distribution in this country. That's too much. That's too much power to have. Uh, and you know, given that their way of delivering news to people is so regressive and since and so negative, uh, we have to come up with a new solution. Totally agree. Uh, you could uh, find Matt's work at Rolling Stone. Uh, obviously, uh, I Can't Breathe, which I will finish reading. Uh, I was a little busy the last few months. Uh, you could uh, purchase that. Thank you uh, for joining me, Matt. Uh, I look forward to doing some more stuff with you in the future. Uh, thanks, Jordan, and good luck to you. Thanks. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, really interesting conversation with uh, Matt Taibbi, who, you know, a lot of the things he said you don't particularly hear in the corporate media. Uh, so it's really helpful to hear the history on something like uh, what America did to interfere with Russia's election in 1996 uh, and all those things. So I think that um, I'm glad I could bring him to you. I'm going to be bringing others like him uh, to you over the next few months, uh, independent journalist, uh, journalist that might work for a more corporate outlet, but actually write valuable things and report valuable things. And obviously, I will be talking to activists who you also won't see in the corporate media, so we could find out on news that's going on around the country that we don't know about. Um, I have always admired Matt Taibbi. Uh, he has written a forward uh, for Hunter Thompson's book, uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72. Uh, I think he adds a lot of expertise and his writing is really, really raw and uh, humorous and cutting. Uh, and I appreciate him joining. If you don't know, I am now launched on Patreon. I have a reporting page. It's patreon.com slash Jordan Charity Reports. Uh, we made this podcast free so you could get a taste of what I'm going to be doing. Uh, you could go to uh, patreon.com slash Jordan Charity Reports where you'll get my podcast. You'll get my uh, daily video diaries, which is going to give you a little behind the scenes, uh, what the stages are, what the steps are that we're at in launching this new media company, uh, hopefully by the summer. Uh, we are in the beginning stages of that, sending out the business proposal. We have a name. We have a logo. I think it's badass, and we will reveal that in due time. Uh, so I appreciate for those. We already have over 100 patrons signed up, uh, and we've only had it up for a week. So definitely check it out, patreon.com slash Jordan Charity Reports. We need to be. We need to be the media we want to see. So we need to create the media we want to see. And let's keep it real. 
that's going to involve your financial support that's going to involve your social media support uh, a lot of these social media outlets are now suppressing independent journalists and you don't see our work as as more visibly in your feeds so uh, you know whatever you could do two dollars subscriptions a month five dollars subscriptions a month ten dollars subscriptions a month uh it will help me get back in the field where i where i like to be it will also help me to create the network that i believe we need which is going to feature other reporters covering the standing rocks the flints the east chicago's the water contamination around the country the police brutality the corruption going on as far as um state and local politicians that you never hear about but are just as corrupt on the federal level i want to bring that all to you help me get there one more time, patreon.com slash Jordan Charidan reports. And also visit my website, jordancharidan.com. Sign up for my email list. Part of building a new company is cutting out YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and having your your data uh, directly. I will not do what Facebook did and then have it <laughs> allow it to be sold off to third-party companies. We just want your email so we could update you and communicate directly with you. Thank you so much uh, for listening. Thanks to Matt. And also uh, subscribe youtube.com slash Jordan Sheridan reports. Peace. Mm-hmm.